you turn to the Word of God, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, let's read together the 21 verses of Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members of one another. Having then gifts differing, According to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Thus far, we read God's holy and inspired word. It's on the basis of this text, Romans 12 and other like it that we have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 32. Lord's Day 
Lord's Day 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Questions and answers 86 and 87. Since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Why must we still do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude to God for his blessings, and that he may be praised by us. Also, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? By no means, for the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. And now we're going to read one more article of our confession from the Belgian Confession, Article 24, because Lord's Day 32 deals with good works. Let's read that rather lengthy article, but a necessary article, Article 24 of the Belgian Confession, entitled Man's Sanctification and Good Works. Article 24 of the Belgian Confession, we believe that this true faith being wrought in man by the hearing of the word of God and by the operation and the operation of the Holy Ghost doth regenerate and make him a new man, causing him to live a new life and freeing him from the bondage of sin. Therefore, it is so far from being true that this justifying faith makes men remiss in a pious and holy life, that, on the contrary, without it they would never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. Therefore, it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man. For we do not speak of a vain faith, but of such a faith which is called in Scripture a faith that worketh by love, which excites man to the practice of these works which God has commanded in his word. These works, as they proceed from the good root of faith, are good and acceptable in the sight of God for as much as they are all sanctified by his grace, howbeit they are of no account towards our justification, for it is by faith in Christ that we are justified, even before we do good works. Otherwise they could not be good works any more than the fruit of a tree can be good before the tree itself is good. Therefore we do good works, but not to merit by them, for what can we merit? Nay, we are beholden to God for the good works we do, and not he to us, since it is he that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let us therefore attend to, that which, to what is written, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, 
we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. In the meantime, we do not deny that God rewards our good works, but it is through his grace that he crowns his gifts. Moreover, though we do good works, we do not found our salvation upon them, for we do no work but what is polluted by our flesh and also punishable. And although we could perform such works, still the remembrance of one sin is sufficient to make God reject them. Thus, then, we would always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty, and our poor consciences continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, with Lord's Day 32, the Heidelberg Catechism begins its the third main section of the Catechism. And you Heidelberg Catechism students know what those three divisions are. The main theme of the Catechism is comfort. And there's three things that we need to know to have that comfort first how great my miseries and sins are, Lord's Days 2 through 4. Secondly, how I may be delivered from my sins and miseries through Jesus Christ, Lord's Days 5 through 31. And the final section now that we begin, how I may show my gratitude to God for giving me such a great deliverance in Jesus Christ, Lord's Days 32 through 52. And that means that for the next 20 Lord's Days that we will be treating this subject of gratitude and thankfulness. And that thankfulness on our part is expressed in our keeping the commandments of God because shortly the catechism will go on to expound the commandments. The thankfulness we show to God is also shown this way by us engaging in prayer and asking for all of the blessings of salvation and thanking God for giving them unto us so that the catechism ends up with the last six Lord's Days uh, or so explaining the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. But all these last 20 Lord's Days have to do with thankfulness. And they all have to do with the, the expression of that thankfulness in our lives we express our thankfulness by performing good works. The Reformed faith loves good works. The Reformed faith emphasizes good works. And that's not just the Heidelberg Catechism, but that's true in the Belgic Confession as well of what we read there in Article 24. And the Belgic Confession devotes that lengthy article to the discussion of good works, that good works are the fruit of God in us, Good works are performed by us through the power of God's grace in us. And so our calling then is to know our sins and miseries. Our calling is to know that we have been delivered from those sins and miseries through Jesus Christ and now that we must show thankfulness to God. And we show that thankfulness to God by performing good works. Now, maybe as Reformed Christians, we 
become a little suspicious of that man or woman who speaks too much about good works. We look a little sideways at that person who might speak openly and freely of his or her love for good works. And if that's the case with you or with me, then that's regrettable. Because we as Reformed believers, we, we love good works. We don't speak ill of good works. And we as Reformed believers love good works so much that we would fill our lives with as many good works as we possibly can. The problem we have is not with good works as such. The problem we have and the problem that God's word draws our attention to is the problem of works righteousness. That's another way of saying that we are saved at least entirely or even in part by the works that we would perform. But when it comes to good works as fruits of our salvation, then the Reformed faith loves and can't get enough of good works. And may that be our attitude that we are so thankful, so profoundly thankful to God for what he has given us in Jesus Christ, that we perform good works to the glory of God, never to base our salvation on them, but always as the necessary fruits of our salvation. And so such a heavy emphasis that the Heidelberg Catechism places upon good works, and exactly because that's the teaching of Scripture so that we read Romans 12, and right there in those opening verses, offering our bodies a living sacrifice to God. And that's what the end of verse 1 says, that this is your reasonable service. And that means this is your calling. This is your obligation having been saved by grace, and it's reasonable. It's reasonable, isn't it? It follows from the fact that you've been saved from all your sins, given his only begotten son to redeem you, and now it's fitting and reasonable and necessary that you should offer your whole life as a sacrifice of thankfulness Unto him, this is your reasonable service. So when Romans 12 verse 1 calls us to this reasonable service, it's calling us to a life of good works. And that's what we noticed this morning, that we want to learn more about these good works and why it's necessary that we walk in them. The necessity of good works, why we must still do good works, is the theme. Let's look at the meaning of that. Let's look at the reasons the catechism gives. And then finally, the warning. And so the Heidelberg Catechism gets right to the heart of the issue there in the opening question, and it does so in a very penetrating way. The question is, since we're saved by grace without any merit of ours, why must we still do good works? And maybe 
Maybe this question makes us a little bit uneasy because of that word must. Why must we do good works? Because whenever we're told that we must do something, then instantly our guard goes up. When there's something in that word must that speaks of us not wanting to do it, and, and we must do it. And that word must, yes, it can be a very demanding word so that whether the child wants to take out the garbage or not, whether the child wants to shovel the driveway in the wintertime or mow the yard in the summertime or not, this is something that we as parents say, this is something that you must do. And we demand that you do it. Well, we must perform good works. But when we hear that exhortation, we don't bristle and we don't steal ourselves and we don't harden ourselves, but understand it this way. I must perform these good works because this is my duty. This is my God-given duty. All right? And then when we put it that way, then it's not quite so bad. This is my God-given duty to show my love and my thankfulness to God so that as Romans 12 verse 1 states it, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So that this is our service that we render unto God, and and, and it's reasonable. It's logical. It follows that since Christ delivered me from all of my sins and all of my miseries, that now I serve him by a life of good works. And that's the testimony of the word of God elsewhere in Ephesians 2, verse 10. Familiar with that passage, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And that's beautiful. That presents us as the children of God as being the handiwork of God. But not only did he create us physically, He has recreated us in the spirit of Jesus Christ, and it's all with a view to our performing good works. So that good works will always be the fruit of those who are regenerated and who have the spirit of Jesus Christ. And that's the perspective of the catechism as well, that the regenerated Christian will perform good works. So that it's interesting that even in this Lord's Day, it's not, it's not even defended that we do perform those good works, not even explained as much. It just says, why must we still do good works? Take it for, taking, taking it for granted, as it were, that, well, of course we perform good works, understanding that this is our duty, which is exactly what Romans 12 verse 1 says. It calls this our reasonable service, our 
service. And that particular word, reasonable service, emphasizes that this is our duty. This is our obligation. This is our service. Doesn't every good slave render service to his master? That service is not optional. The slave is required to do it. And that's the idea here. We are required to worship God. That's our solemn obligation. That's our holy duty. And the particular way that we render that reasonable service, now in this context of Lord's Day 32, is in our performing good works. Now, when we have the right view of good works, then we will be on guard against the, the wrong view of good works. And there are different views of good works, and these are explanations of good works that go contrary to the proper place that Scripture gives good works, and we have to be on guard against these views. In the first place, it's wrong for one to assert that our salvation is founded upon these good works, and this is something that we know. This is something that we've had drilled into us ever since our very early years, that our good works, we know, do not save us, but that teaching is what's called works righteousness. And it says that my righteousness before God is based on my works so that I perform my good works and whatever that good work might be, it might be the good work of helping out the neighbor or it might be the good work of, of, of exercising my faith in some way, shape or form and then for one person to look at those good works and for God to look at them and to say, you did well. I'm going to base my salvation I give to you upon those good works. And that's something that you catechism students, older students or younger students, we know how to refute that. We say that can't be the case because man is totally depraved. And apart from God, man can do no good whatsoever. And to assert that all my salvation or even a little bit of my salvation is founded upon those good works, based upon those good works, is really to deny the teaching of total depravity. The truth of the matter is that our works are always the fruit of our salvation. God is never obligated to do something for us. God never owes us a paycheck, as it were, for a job well done. If, but in everything, we owe him. We owe him thanks for everything. And so the Reformed faith, we oppose works righteousness. But in the second place, there's something else we ought to be aware of, and that's this, the thinking and the mentality concerning works that goes like this. My works really don't matter. And that's the error that goes by the name antinomianism. Antinomianism teaches that because now we have been saved by grace, that really we can live as we please. 
That's the doctrine that abuses all of the beautiful doctrines of grace and uses it as a justification to sin. Um, And so those are the two wrong views regarding good works. Either that they saved me entirely or partly, or that my good works really don't matter. And the Reformed faith rejects both. Good works are not the basis of our salvation, but they are necessary in your life and mine. So here we ask some soul-searching questions at this point. And we ask the question of ourselves, what is my view of good works? And here I trust that not a one of us here would say that we believe in works righteousness or the opposite extreme that my works don't matter at all. But maybe the better question is this, when, when others observe us going about our day-to-day duties, what impression do we leave with them regarding the place of good works in my life? Does the other person look at us and do they say, boy, that, that person has all that he can do to say a good word about the neighbor? Or that man says that he's a Christian, but he doesn't seem very motivated to keep the commandments of God and really his life goes contrary to what I hear him confessing. Well, all right, what does our life and actions declare regarding the place of good works in our lives. And then what about it from our point of view? What is the place of good works in in my life? Do I view good works as a chore to perform? Are they something that I do to try to earn points with God? Am I careless in the way that I live? because I know that I'm going to heaven anyways, and when I see others who are joyful and happy as they engage in good works, do I become kind of suspicious of them? Do I impugn their motives and think ill of them? And so basically, what is my view of good works? Well, people of God, good works are necessary for us as Christians, but they are no chore. They are no burden. They are the fruit of God working in us so that we show our thankfulness to God for all that he has given unto us. And then we can say a few more things about good works, that good works are necessary in our lives, necessary not for a few hours of the day, but that I would perform them the whole day. Good works are not simply part of my Christian life, but they characterize my entire life. And there are all different areas of our life, all different kinds of areas. How I behave and conduct myself when I'm at home with my family, how I behave and conduct myself when I'm at work, if we work out in the world, if we have 
unbelieving colleagues, how I behave and conduct myself when I'm here in church with God's people, when I'm in school with others, how I behave and conduct myself when I'm out in public doing things, how I behave and conduct myself when I engage in pleasure and, and recreation. And in all those different places, our calling is to live in good works and to do that consistently. So that, do you live in good works on the Sabbath day? I trust that you do. Now continue that every day of the week. Do you live in good works at home among the family? Then continue that as, as you go out into the public. And so as Christians, we are called to be consistent. And that means that we will be genuine and that we will be sincere all of the time, every time. We don't live a certain way at home. And then when we go to work, we live a different way so that at home I must live in good works. But when I go to work, well, well, it, it's a different place. It's a different setting. I'm allowed a little bit of leeway to do something a little bit different. No, but the same godly life that characterizes me on Sunday among God's people is the same godly life that will characterize me every day when I'm at home I'm at school, wherever I go, and always and everywhere, I am a Christian. I am a man, a woman, a child of faith. And it becomes my privilege and obligation and duty to perform good works to the glory of my heavenly Father. Romans 12 teaches that our lives must be filled with these good works and that it ought to characterize our whole life. Romans 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, but a living sacrifice. And the idea is that if you go back to the Old Testament, when a sacrifice was offered to God, the entire portion of that sacrifice was dedicated to God. And that sacrifice was consumed entirely so that afterwards there was not a piece of that sacrifice that was left. It was all used. It was all spent. Nothing of that sacrifice went to waste. We are a living sacrifice. A sacrifice that doesn't, doesn't die, but a sacrifice to God that, that stays alive. And as a living sacrifice, we press our whole being, everything that we are, into being this living sacrifice, giving all of our body and soul and mind and strength to the glory of God. Our entire lives, not just a little piece of my life here, but my entire life. And that's Lord's Day 32 as well. That's so we may testify by the whole of our conduct. That encompasses everything in your life and mine. By the whole of our conduct, our 
gratitude to God. And now again, that doesn't strike us as strange that I am required to present my life as a living sacrifice to God. That, that's not strange. That's not unusual because what part of you has God redeemed? Has God redeemed only your body and not your soul? Or has God redeemed only your soul but not your body? God has redeemed us, body and soul. Let's put it another way. All that I am, I owe to thee. And therefore, is it not right and fitting and reasonable that we would offer our entire lives as a sacrifice of thankfulness unto him because we are redeemed, body and soul. And may that be true of you and me, that our lives are characterized by good works. What, uh, in the second place, then, the catechism now explains the reasons why we must do these good works. And note that the catechism already in question 86 is very quick to point out that the Reformed faith doesn't have anything to do with works righteousness and that our possible motivation in performing good works would be something to, to save ourselves. It puts that to rest. Look at question 86 when it says, since then, in the first place, since then we are delivered from our misery and not that we deliver ourselves, but that we are delivered. Something happens to us. We are delivered and we are saved from our misery. In the second place, merely of grace. So that's the explanation of our salvation. Not my works, but it's the grace of God. Through Christ, God works that grace through Christ so that our salvation is found entirely in him. And then question 86, without any merit of ours. So that there's, there, there's nothing that we do to make God beholden to us. And that's why we read also Article 24 of the Belgian Confession. Uh, the Belgian Confession there at the very end of the article where it says, moreover, though we do good works, though we do not found our salvation upon them. And Romans 12 as well makes it very clear that our good works are, are, are not something that we present to God for salvation, um, that we could save ourselves by keeping the law and by performing good works. Romans 12 verse 3 for I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. All right. That's something that warns us against pride. That's something that warns us against even entertaining that notion of taking a, 
one of my works, the smallest of my works, and presenting it to God as a basis of my salvation. And so the catechism and scripture having guarded against any possible ill motivation for, for salvation the, and for good works, the catechism moves on in answer, answer 86 to give the positive reasons for why we must still do good works. And as we read through Lord's Day 32, you notice that there are so many different reasons, but I would have you know that it's not as if all of these reasons given in Lord's Day 32 are all parallel one to another and independent one of another. So that one of the reasons why we must perform good works is gratitude to God. And then all of a sudden over here, an entirely different, another reason why we must perform good works is to worship God. And then uh, another reason uh, in another way that why we perform good works is to, to be a good witness to the neighbor. That's, that's not the idea at all, but rather first and the first and foremost and primary reason why we must perform good works is always thankfulness, is always gratitude, and everything else that is listed here in the catechism flows out of that. But let's take that first overarching reason why we must do good works. The catechism says that we may testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude to God for his blessings. And isn't that one of the ways that we show thanks in our lives? We not only say thank you, but then we also live joyfully and we live obediently. We think, we think of a man who lives, a tenant, who lives in a rented apartment and the landlord comes by and says, I've decided that you can live here for free. I won't charge you any rent. I will pay all the utilities. You may stay as long as you want, and you don't have to pay a dime. Well, won't that tenant be happy? Won't that tenant be joyful? Won't that tenant then go out of his way even, perhaps, to take care of the house? and to do those things that would, would make his landlord happy? Well, that's how it is between us and God. God has given us everything. God has given us salvation in Jesus Christ, and therefore we perform good works testifying, thanks God for such a great salvation. And then closely following up that, the gratitude, we perform good works as the catechism says, and that he may be praised by us. Our good works praise God because where do they come from? They come from him. We read that earlier in that passage from Ephesians chapter 2. God has decreed from all eternity that we should perform those good works. And so our good works come from God. He's given us those good works. 
and he gives us the Holy Spirit, and now we perform those good works. And that gives glory to God because he's the author of all those good works. And the catechism goes on. We do good works that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. And when it speaks of being assured of his faith, this is an assurance that simply assures us that we have faith so that when we perform good works, we may say, there's no way that an unbeliever, an unregenerate, without faith would perform those good works, but those good works assure us that we have that faith and that by faith I am united to Jesus Christ. And this is a very practical reason then for these good works, our own spiritual comfort and assurance that we have faith. So that when we perform good works, God assures us, I've given you faith, and you are my children. It's it's something like this, that when you see a tree out in the field and that tree has apples on it is, it, is it hard for you to think of what kind of a tree that might be? If you're out in the orchard in Florida or California and you see all, all these orange balls hanging from the trees and you say, well, I wonder what type of a tree that might be? No, of course not, because there's only one kind of a tree that gives apples. There's only one kind of a tree that gives oranges. And now there's only one kind of a tree that produces good works. A faithful tree, a godly tree, a regenerated tree. And so, beloved, do you see those good works in your life? And we acknowledge and we admit and confess that, yes, there is that lack. There is that lack in our lives. We ought to be performing more. But do you see any? Do you see any good works as the next Lord's Day will go on to define what good works are? That, we perf- that good works are those that are performed to the glory of God and according to the law of God? Do you see any of those works that you've performed to the glory of God and according to God's law? And the answer is, you have. And so have I. And that tells us that we are the children of God. That's evidence that God has given us faith. And by that faith, we are united to Jesus Christ. The catechism goes on and states, the reason we do good works also, finally, is that by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. And here we see that it pleases our Heavenly Father to use our godly lives so that others see us, and so that others hear us, 
And God uses that so that other of his sheep may be gained to Christ. That's what our Lord and Savior teaches when he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Not just in the home, not just in private, but everywhere we go, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The Lord uses you and me to bring others to him, using our good works, using our godly conversation. Has it ever happened that somebody else has approached you and in some way, shape, or form asked a reason of the hope that is within you? Maybe not saying it in those exact words, but inquiring into your life, into your beliefs, into, into your godliness. Maybe they see how many children you have. Why do you have so many children? Maybe they see that you send them to a Christian school and somebody asks, why do you send them there and not someplace else? Or that people would see in you that you're not all wrapped up in earthly things. And they ask a reason of the hope that is within you. And we give an answer. We give a godly, humble answer. And, and God uses that so that others are intrigued by our convictions and are drawn to the truth of the scriptures that they see consistently displayed in your life. And so the Lord is pleased to use our good works to convert others Many good reasons, then, for doing good works. Finally, this morning, we end with the warning that God's word gives. The warning is summed up in question 87. Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? And the answer is, by no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now we ask, why is it? Why is it that one who continues in his sin will not inherit the kingdom of God? And the answer is because unrepentant sin does not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the warning is those who live in sin and therefore not performing good works to the glory of God according to his law that they may not expect to inherit the kingdom of God. That's how serious it is. Those who do not do good works, those who continue on in their unrepentant life do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And beloved, we take that warning to heart because we all have that old man within us and that old man must be crucified day by day. And that old man would prevent us from performing good works 
But for us who are the people of God, the warning that God gives, it isn't for the purpose of, of, of scaring us into obedience. But the warning that God gives is motivation for us unto obedience. Because if no person living unrepentantly in sin will inherit the kingdom of God, well then, then I will repent of my sin. And I will confess my sins before my heavenly Father. And I will live in hope of the kingdom of heaven that God has promised me. And so, beloved, what a redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And what a, what a holy calling and privilege that God gives unto you and to me that we would present our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Apply it unto our hearts. We thank thee for salvation in Jesus Christ. And our hearts are overflowing with joy and happiness. And we thank thee that thou hast given unto us that way for us to express our joy and thanks by giving unto us good works. We pray, Father, that the works that we render unto thee will in fact be pleasing and acceptable unto thee. Sanctify us by thy word and spirit. And may we be a people always characterized who love good works, who walk in good works to the glory of thy name and thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us. All this we ask in his name alone. Amen.